Welcome to the Sport and Rights podcast, brought to you by the Center for Sport and Human Rights. I'm Mary Harvey, and today it's my great pleasure and honor to welcome Mary Robinson as our guest. Among her many roles, Mary has served as the President of the Republic of Ireland and as United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights. She's the current chair of the Elders, the group of world leaders brought together originally by Nelson Mandela. We're also proud that she is the founder and chair of the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Welcome, Mary. It's always great to talk with you. I thought we could split our conversation today into two parts. First, I know issues around climate change and the connections to human rights have been a particular focus of your work for a number of years now. And as we all know, there's so many aspects to the climate crisis, including long-term increases in migration, uh, which drive further human rights abuses and discrimination. In our particular area of sport, we can already see the effects of climate change on athletes and fans. So I'd like to begin with your reflection on this challenge from a human rights perspective. Then I thought our audience would benefit from your reflections on how the Center for Sport and Human Rights first got started and what you see as our potential contribution to addressing climate change in the context of a sporting world. Well, we're definitely in a time of acute climate crisis, a climate emergency. As the scientists have told us, the Intergovernmental Panel of Scientists told us in October 2018, that we really have to bend a curve on emissions by 45% by 2030. They said then you have 12 years, now we've less than 10. And we're not bending it as we should as yet. And there are very important conferences, including uh, at the end of this year in, in Glasgow, uh, COP26. Uh, but I actually missed for a while the real connection between the climate crisis and human rights. And I didn't speak about it when I was serving as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, because there was another part of the UN dealing with climate, the Climate Convention. And I was in a silo, a big silo of human rights, gender equality, rights of people with disabilities, rights of indigenous peoples, you name it. And it was afterwards working with a small NGO I had founded called Realizing Rights on the rights that matter if you don't have them, rights to food and water, health, women, peace and security issues in African countries, that I was startled to find that I had missed that connection because it was so visible. If you don't know when to sow and you don't know when to harvest because everything has changed, the rainy seasons don't come, you've long periods of drought and flash flooding. And uh, all of this was happening in 2003, 2004, 2005. It wasn't happening in Europe. It wasn't happening to the same extent in the United States. There were rare events that might indicate a climate crisis, but they were rare. It was happening every day in their lives for the poorest communities. And I realized they weren't responsible. So this was really serious. And then there was the gender dimension and um, the fact that women had less rights and had to put food on the table, go further in drought for water, et cetera. So that really brought me to an understanding. And then in 2004, after my time as high commissioner, the Maldives seized the Human Rights Council with the issue. And then it became much more evident. We had resolutions showing the negative impacts of climate on human rights and the gender dimensions that uh, influenced first the Human Rights Council. And then we brought that into the UN FCCC, the, the, the formal convention process. Well, yeah. And then, I mean, you have, I mean, countries 
disappearing. You have islands that are, you know, with, with, with rising oceans, you have huge migration challenges. Yes, I often reflect on what Eleanor Roosevelt, who was responsible for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, would have thought about the idea that whole countries might go out of existence and lose their sovereignty. That was not something that was on the table in 1948, but it's a very harsh reality for yeah. uh, people who have, uh, there are people already moving. I have a friend, Ursula Rakova, who's actually moving people from their small cataract island to uh, Papua New Guinea, to Bougainville in Papua New Guinea, and all the traumas of that. And, and she says in this wonderful indigenous way, she says, but Mary, there is nothing I can do about the fact that we have to leave the land of the bones of our ancestors. And I feel her pain as an indigenous person. I mean, that's just powerful. I mean, and in, in, in for those of us that aren't seeing that firsthand, it's hard to wrap your head around that. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's really hard to imagine, you know, whole coastlines of either of our countries where we are right now, that that could happen. And, and this is what's happening to people right now. Um, can, can we dive in a little bit to the women's empowerment piece of it or, or the challenges to, to women in particular that are presented by the climate crisis? Women are more impacted because they don't have land rights in many places. They, they don't have the same power or the same social role. They grow different crops and they uh, have a caring responsibilities. They have to put food on the table, as I said. I, I wrote a book on climate justice, hope, resilience, and the fight for a sustainable future. And of the 11 stories, nine of them are about women. There are two good men, uh, you know, that, but uh, I wanted to bring out the extent, despite being the victims of climate, which they are, they are also the agents of change. They are the ones who are making their communities resilient. They're using their skills of networking, their skills of problem solving, a women's way of leading um, to ensure that they try to um, make sure um, that their children are protected, that their families are protected, that there's food on the table, as I said. Oh, so important. So looking a little bit, and one thing you and I share is um, a connection to the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Yeah. And uh, as I look at the, the role of sport, right, we have this enormous this existential challenge that we all have. Um, what role can sport play in the solution or tackling um, the climate crisis? I mean, sport itself is impacted. I mean, we're not, we're seeing mitigation. There's no, there's no prevention, it's mitigation. Yeah. You know, runners are running, it's hotter and so on and so forth. Yeah, actually I've been on a learning curve since I became involved in the Center for Sport and Human Rights on just how impacted at all stages uh, the nexus of sport and human rights is, you know, um, and, and, and the environment. I mean, uh, when I was president of Ireland, I loved the fact that I could do something about women's sport just by going along and right. by valuing women's sport, sport the same as the sport of boys and men. Um, and the crowds grew each year because the president was going, um, as simple as that. But, you know, uh, fighting racism, fighting discrimination um, on, the, on the basis of sex, um, uh, you know, realizing uh, that people can die building stadiums, um, build, can die from heat, um, uh, you know, from lack of proper protective equipment and so on and so on. 
there are, there are so many issues uh, which you know made me really happy that uh, we could have a center that could deal in a holistic way uh, with these issues so so the question i get asked often is you know what can the center do because the climate crisis is an impact on human rights right it impacts human rights and we get asked a lot what is your response or how are you tackling climate as part of our role? And so I guess my question is, is do you have a point of view on the role of sport? And for some of the things you mentioned, right? The sports role in highlighting issues like racism, right? People dying, building stadiums. What can sport bring to help people realize we have to do more with the climate crisis? I think sport has, in one way, the same responsibility of any other way in which people are organized in enjoying their lives, because that people tend to enjoy sport, that's fine. But what about the commitment to the climate crisis? Um, mega sports in particular, the Olympics and FIFA and other world sporting bodies should commit, as corporations are doing, to be zero carbon and zero emissions and a net zero emissions by 2050 and work backwards to 2030 and be part of that dialogue. Um, they should look at their equipment. They lo should look at um, who is making sports clothes. And uh, you know, is, that, is that part of trafficking? Is that part of abusive labor conditions? Um, all of those human rights issues, but in particular also um, the, the climate uh, impacts um, uh, the, the impacts of the equipment, uh, all of that. Um, I think, Mary, you probably know even more in depth because you're living this, and I know you have, uh, you know, a, a commitment to greening um, and sports activities. But really, uh, it, it is important that the sports world joins the, you know, civil society on the road to pressurizing for the urgency of the climate crisis and for action um, and. So many young people are involved now. Um, they would like to see sporting bodies uh, play their role. Yeah, in a, in a previous like like you, um, you know, I was involved with an organization called the Green Sports Alliance, and it was yeah. what can sport do to 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 make their own contribution? So and tell me what what you know, because I'd like to know from you what what how you would answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so the so first thing is, is we talk about the last mile. So the last mile into the stadium, um, you know, how is that, um, how, what, what is the carbon emission of that? So, yeah. and, and carbon by far, as it is with everything, right? I mean, waste, use of natural resources, yeah. water, so on and so forth, that's important. But the biggest nut is by far carbon and the footprint yeah. of sporting events that are, six week long events, right? So it's really the, the challenge, the biggest challenge has been carbon emissions to transportation to and from events, if they're things like professional sports um, and making alternate you know, means available. What is your transportation strategy and yeah. does it commit to that? Uh, and then there's the whole issue of airline travel. I mean, when you yeah. have something like the World Cup or the Olympic games, people are on airplanes. Well, COVID has taught us all a big lesson there. I used to fly too much because I was passionate to communicate the climate crisis message and the climate justice message. Now I'm going to be very picky. I have to be there sometimes to persuade people, but I can travel my voice and my image like this far, far more. And uh, that's a good lesson. 
a more scalable Mary Robinson is in all of our best interest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I guess a, a final question around this. Um, to a person, right? It's hard to wrap your head around what can I do, right? To a person, what what message of hope? And you said sometimes you're a prisoner of hope. What message of hope do you have for those of us who just want to hang our head in despair around climate? What can I do? What can the average person do? And and maybe talk a little bit if you want about COP26 later on in the year and why that's so important. I think, and I, I often say this, there are three steps that we should all take, every single person. And the first is to personalize your concern about the climate issue, make it personal in your life. And you know you're doing that if you actually are committed to being more uh, strict with yourself about things like recycling, about not having waste, about maybe changing your diet, about you know all those little steps that you take. And if you make it personal, it can actually help your anxiety because then you're part of the solution. You, you, you know, you, you've decided I'm, I'm, I'm gonna do my bit. And then having decided that the second step is frankly to get angry about those who don't do as much as they should with more responsibility. And I mean governments, I mean uh, corporations, I mean cities, I mean investors, um, you know, use your voice, use your vote, um, but also join organizations or support organizations that are doing as much as they can and join a kind of civil society sense that we all have to uh, put more pressure on. But the third thing I ask people to do is the most important, Mary. And I think sports people could actually probably have a particular role in this. And that is to imagine this world we need to be hurrying towards because we need a kind of enthusiasm for getting there. It's going to be a much healthier world. We won't have the pollution of fossil fuel, the many deaths, the asthma, etc. Um, it'll be a, a world of different kind of jobs. It'll be a world of green cities where we enjoy uh, nature and we're close to it. And we, uh, we hear the birds singing as we've heard them in the lockdown of COVID and suddenly, wow, isn't that beautiful? Um, so, you know, I, th I think, uh, you know, the sports world can actually uh, talk about how lovely it would be to be able to uh, have a pollution-free environment for sport. Yeah, I'm trying to wrap my head around what an environment, a world would look like that's regenerative. That's, exactly. That, that's actually contributing to healing the planet that we've damaged. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have another podcast um, called Mothers of Invention, which I do with a young Irish. Uh, I've heard woman. that. It's really yeah. interesting. It's terrific. Yeah, Maeve Higgins. And we talk to a lot of women who are very innovative about regenerative ideas. And you get the enthusiasm in their voice. You know, the, you get the real sense that uh, they, they, they feel so fulfilled because they're fulfilling a natural link with nature. A number of them are indigenous. And of course, they are the most powerful voices when it comes to saving the forests, being um, uh, stewards of the seeds and all the rest of it. But uh, it, it, it's wonderful to hear what a lot of women in particular and communities and men as well are doing um, in uh, regenerating and restoring biodiversity, et cetera. Perfect. Uh, any thoughts going into COP at the end of the year in Glasgow? That like the share? urgency cannot be exaggerated, that we all need to be part of uh, a movement that insists on greater ambition 
from those who have more responsibility. And the more we can do that, uh, the, the better, because we're not at the moment uh, anywhere like where we should be and need to be. Yeah. Terrific. Thank you so much, Mary. I'd, I'd like to pivot a little bit now to talking about the center. Yeah. Um, the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Um, how did this subject first, you've been the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights um, and, and you've had various roles that have impacted human rights. How did the subject of sport and human rights first capture your attention? Well, the first thing I'd say is that it was quite a long process and it's maybe hard to pin down any single moment. Uh, I think I first heard about work in this area from some of my colleagues at the Institute of Human Rights and Business. I had been the founding chair of the Institute um, for a number of years, handed over with pleasure to John Ruggie, but was patron. So I, I really had a continuing relationship. Um, and uh, the Institute was doing work in response to concerns around increasing exploitation of vulnerable migrant workers and trafficking and forced labor linked to games in the hospitality sector. And they were also part of a, a discussion, a very useful discussion at the time about the learnings from the London 2012 uh, Sustainability Commission relating to the London Olympics. The London Olympics was a, a good Olympics from that point of view because they really took seriously um, their responsibilities with the Sustainability Commission. And then they had nowhere to put their report. You know, who was going to take this report further? So they, uh, uh, you know, they, 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 they had within that report noteworthy steps relating to grievance mechanisms for those locally who felt that they were harmed in some way during the process leading up to the games and during the games themselves. And how could this be captured and passed on to future host cities? And that was the dilemma um, that uh, my colleagues uh, talked to me about. And uh, these conversations led to IHRB, the Institute for Human Rights and Business, producing, I think it was in 2013, an important report called Striving for Excellence. And that looked at human rights risks in each stage of the life cycle of a mega sporting event, like for example, the Olympics or like FIFA and football, and set out some clear recommendations for hosts, for sports bodies, for corporate sponsors and others. So the initial focus was very much on what could be done for sports, for mega sports and human rights. And if, and if I recall correctly, the, the recommendations from that report uh, published by IHRB formed the basis for a letter that you, that you authored with John Ruggie to FIFA, to the president of FIFA at the time, a calling for a number of actions regarding human rights and sports bodies. Yes, and as you I'm sure are aware, FIFA was facing a range of governance challenges at the time, and we felt that it was an important moment to offer some specific recommendations on how FIFA and indeed other uh, mega sport bodies uh, needed to be aligning their policies and practices with human rights due diligence standards as set out in the UN guiding principles on business and human rights that John Ruggie had um, done so much work on. And we were pleased to see that our outreach actually had the intended result by triggering some serious conversations within FIFA and in other sports bodies about what respecting human rights meant for them. And John Ruggie went on to play a further role with FIFA. And that led to a high level meeting in Switzerland in 2015, co-hosted by IHRB, 
Wilton Park and the Swiss government, which brought together a range of individuals and organizations in the sports ecosystem, if I could call it that, alongside human rights organizations like the UN Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights, the ILO, Human Rights Watch, and others. And it was one of, if not the first time, when all the relevant actors involved actually sat together for two days to talk about the human rights challenges linked to sport and what could be done by them individually and collectively to address them. It's interesting that it was as recently as 2015 that that holistic concerted approach from different perspectives took place. I mean, that, that's amazing because it really, it was, it was genius at the time. I mean, to have, it's not just, I mean, but a lot of people would say, well, you know, let's engage one part of the sport ecosystem you know, civil society, but it was really a whole holistic approach of looking well, at the advertisers, the advertisers of mega sports were very worried about yep. um, the damage done by corruption, the damage done to the image, and you know, whether they would lose out and um, from the huge gains they made from so they were also uh, linked and involved and the, um, uh, you know, the um, employers body became part of the, uh, the, the four um, the uh, Institute, the IHRB, um, the ILO, the Office of High Commissioner, and uh, uh, the, the ICTU, and the uh, Institute of Employers. So you know, that gave fun. some that gave some pressure from the private sector, you know, on the employer side. Absolutely, and and then the government. We had governments. Uh, so the government of Switzerland also. Yes, the Swiss government initially, and then other governments um, joined in, which was really important, and we. Uh, we were very fortunate because it was during the Obama uh, administration that the United States became involved and uh, our first, uh, you know, more public um, sporting chance uh, um, meeting was uh, under the auspices of um, the United States in Washington, in the State Department. I couldn't believe it, you know, how, uh, how important it felt to be there in the State Department talking about sport and human rights. I remember I was there um, in the audience. So would you say that, that that moment in Lyon, right back in at that time, would, would you say that that was the moment where it set in motion what would become the nucleus for what would become the Center for Sport and Human Rights? Yes, I think that was one of a number of key moments that got us to where we are now. At least that's what I can remember. Uh, given that I was involved in different stages along the way. My role was largely to uh, chair a, a sprawling um, um, steering group uh, and to encourage participation of different organizations to talk through different choices on how this growing alliance could move forward together in ways that would add value and then agree uh, to serve as the founding chair of the new center once there was agreement. And I remember, you know, using whatever good offices I had to actually bully a bit, you know, bully and persuade and <laughs> put pressure because uh, I felt it was a good thing to, I, I, I even talked about the fact that I was a granny and could, could do this. <laughs> and I, I, I really appreciate all the enormous hard work and effort that went into making the center a reality. And it, it was a courageous thing. It was a courageous thing to turn a large sprawling steering committee into an actual center. And it's a real thrill to see um, how you now as CEO and your growing team uh, are taking this forward and doing such path-breaking work to move 
everyone forward in the reality now of the center? Well, it's it's based on the foundation that was laid. Um, that I mean, if I think about, and all this predates me, right? But if we think about what it was like back in 2016, 2017, 2015 even, BWI, the, the Global Union on Construction, and FIFA and the Supreme Committee and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, very diff they were miles apart, right? In, in terms of issues they were dealing with, there were public reports, there was a lot of concern. And yet somehow through your good offices or however you describe it, the Mary Robinson magic, you, you got people to buy into this idea. Yeah, it's funny when I think back, and I hadn't done this until now, um, uh, to, be, to be honest, Mary, and um, this was pre-COVID, so it was pre-Zoom, um, so we, we did telephone calls, and I remember, you know, trying to identify on the call who is speaking, <laughs> you know, even that, <laughs> among the, the variety of voices and input, and, uh, you know, they were long calls because everybody had to have an opportunity to say their piece, and it was very remarkable to see the gradual coming together of those who had been very far apart and you know, on one side very critical, on the other side quite defensive and, 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 and the opening up of space um, that occurred. And then as, when we had our sporting chance meetings um, and, and could be together physically, that was extremely important, um, leading to the formal launch of the Center for Sport and Human Rights in June 2018. And I remember how, how proud we all felt of that moment because somehow it had been a bottom-up exercise of coming together and painstakingly building something, not top-down, bottom-up, which is quite rare, I think. Well, I, you know, just even the first Sporting Chance Forum that I had in the center, the last one we had, was in your old room, room 20, the Human Rights Chamber room yeah. at the UN, and in uh, November of 2019, and we had a panel on Remedy, and on that panel was BWI, and FIFA. Yeah. And they're talking now, you know, thinking about it was a moment where you sort of take stock of where we were and where we've come is you have and it's, it's on our website where you can see the the actual, uh, you know, the, this session, but it was them talking about how they work together to with a Supreme Committee to resolve workplace health and safety challenges. And it was just this wonderful example of collective action. And I think, you know, if, if you you know, sort of to, to, I guess, maybe give us, leave us with some, some words of wisdom about, you know, advice for all of us as we, I mean, we work on this premise that you instilled around collective action, right? So we bring the solar system and the ecosystem of sport together to act collectively to improve human rights in sport. What advice do you have for us? Um, you know, we're a young organization, um, you know, as, as we move forward. I'm very uh, impressed and pleased with the spirit of the center and um, that has continued right through because it's a spirit of being willing to listen to the other um, in forming this broad collaboration from different perspectives. And they are different perspectives and there are different sensitivities. And the issue of remedies is, is one of the more difficult ones, as, as, as you said, Mary, but I think to be able to continue to acknowledge um, you know, uh, to uh, acknowledge an understanding of where the other is coming from in uh, building greater uh, collaboration, greater strength for the center going
going forward. And it hasn't been easy that uh, the centre, like everyone else, has been hit by COVID and it hasn't been possible to have the same kind of face-to-face -face meetings, um, which are so important um, in building up an organisation. And it, it's great that the centre survived the fact that it had to go virtual and, and had the strength um, of what, you know, what people understood um, had been gained by having a centre for sport and human rights. And I'm, I'm glad that governments more and more are recognising this, that funders are recognising this. Obviously, more funding is, is, is needed and would be welcome. But um, uh, I, I think the centre is on a good path. And I think it's just a case of, uh, of, of, knowing, of knowing how valuable this trusted space is. It's a trusted space in a world where sport and human rights can be quite difficult and quite contentious. But having this trusted space helps a great deal. That's so, so true. And, and putting the voices of those who've been affected in the middle of the room and all agree that that's what's most important. Yeah, I think that's been a very that? good, uh, a very good, uh, uh, you know, sense that it's the victims of discrimination, the victims of racism, the victims of unfair rulings, the victims um, who are able and we've seen some very courageous victims, you know, or I, I wouldn't call them so much victims as actors for change in, in difficult circumstances like the Afghanistan team that we honored one, um, you know, at one particular sporting chance forum. It remind me of exactly what that story was, but I remember uh, being very encouraged by it. Yep. Just an incredible group of brave women advocating for change. Um, Mary yeah. Robinson, it has been an absolute pleasure as always to spend time with you. We're so thankful and grateful for your role with the center and um, we wish you the best of luck in your, your role as the chair of the elders, which is also incredibly important work that you, that keeps you incredibly busy and, uh, you know, making the world a better place for all of us. All I can say, Mary, is um, very soon you're going to be able to meet with colleagues and interact with them you're going to be as vaccinated as we were both talking about you know completing this vaccination process and over the next coming months there is light there is possibilities there is an urgency on the climate side that i want the center for sport and human rights to really step up and do what it can in encouraging the sporting world to be part of uh, addressing the climate crisis but i wish you well and i am happy that we could have this conversation Mary Robinson, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sport and Rights Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Sport and Human Rights. Please subscribe, share, and review the podcast. To find out more about the Center, visit sporthumanrights.org and follow us on Twitter at Sport and Rights. <laughs>